לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit, Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shaman. And joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shaggy, the Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you guys. The summer is over for our friends in Machan Ramah. They're back home. If they're watching this, listening to this, they're back home. We, uh, we know you had a, an amazing summer. We were glad to be part of it. And we're glad to have people who are listening and watching our weekly discussions. It's really, really um, a great part of our lives. And we know that we've become a great part of your lives, too. So we thank you for that. Thank you again, the people at Machana Ramah, the Berkshire, Mitch Mernick, again, for producing us and putting us on the Korama website. You know, we, we'll probably get an award for this. You know, this we we, 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 we've, we are the best Parsha talk in in. Dutchess County, but I there I hope we get nominated for you know what whatever the category Dutchie. award is. The Dutchies, that's the award for the best of everything of Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate. Um so and we're we're heading into the month of Elul now, and uh, that's a well we'll probably save another talk about Elul as we get closer to the holidays. Shoftim is our Parsha this week. Shoftim shotrim titen lecha. That's how the Parsha starts. You shall appoint magistrates and officials, or however we're going to translate shofet vishoter. Those, those are, are very, um, they're specific words, but they're also words that, that have multiple meanings. Like, for example, the shofet in the book of Shoftim is not a judge necessarily as much as that person is, uh, you know, a person with with a kind of power. But but here there is a judiciary. So we're we're entering a part of this uh, book that is going to talk about how power uh, is acted upon, or how power is disseminated in a community in 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 the people. Moses is is really sketching. Out. I, I, I'm I'm tempted to call this a constitution. Not in the sense of our understanding of a constitution, but um, in the sense of you know things are going to run. This is how things are going to run, and we're going to have this kind of level of power. So Barry, you want to just kind of you know react to to that and react to to the different. So I think what's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, is this parallel shoftim v'shotrim. Rashi identifies the shofet as the dayan, the judge who will decide the law. And the uh, shoter is the someone who will enforce the law because if people will not follow the ruling of the judge, you can't have justice. And we sometimes, especially in modern day America, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that a judicial system requires an enforcement piece. And without that enforcement piece, you end up with chaos. The other thing I would like to mention is that in verse um, 19, we have a motive clause for following the law. 
Kashokad Yaber Inecha Chamim Visalef Debrei Tzadikim. We just translate. You're not you're not supposed, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're not supposed to uh, pervert justice or show favoritism or take a bribe. Why? Because a bribe blinds the eyes of the sages and distorts the words of the righteous. And what I find so striking is that we had almost the same law in the first chapter of Devarim without the reason for it. It just said, don't take bribes and don't show favoritism. And I'm struck that, first of all, that such a law needs an explanation, but also that the explanation, I think, suggests something about the way people perceive justice. That, again, you know, something in modern American life, we tend to think of justice as negotiation. And that there is something about it that is perhaps less than pure. Whereas I think the biblical idea is that there is a purity to the notion of justice that we're all responsible for enforcing. Interesting. Interesting. You know, we, we, we live in a, uh, a world that's governed by, I would think as, as you were talking about uh, the court and the rulings of the court and uh, people to enforce the court, you know, this is precisely the, the the crisis that is is now occurring in Israel, where the the Supreme Court basically is saying, look, uh, or the, the government is saying, we're we're going to limit the the role of the Supreme Court, um, and the court is saying, well, we're going to review the the government's position, and the government is saying, we might not abide by the court's ruling, and the moment that the government says or threatens to say. That we're not going to abide by the court's ruling is the moment of of crisis. I mean, it's already the crisis, right? It's this is I, I like what you said about the constitution. You're, you're in, inclined to call this a constitution, which I think is is um, on point because what is a constitution? It's the rules by which we have the rules. Okay, this is the system by which we have power and the, the rules by which we have the rules. And this is true, obviously, in Israel where there is the, the massive constitutional crisis. Uh, and where it's, you know, the the promise in the founding of the state was that by the fall of that year of 1948, they were going to have a constitution. Where it didn't happen. Never. It was too late uh, on that one now. And now we're sorry that we don't because, um, you know, because of the, the massive divisions in that society. But it's true in the United States, too, because where we have diverse, you know, the, the federal powers split into three and we have federalism where each of the states have their own laws and, and powers and now you have a, a I'm, I'm sorry to get all you know contemporary no, a, yeah. public you know current events here but we have um a judiciary system a current executive branch and and what would be before the 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 courts the federal courts and then there's georgia state courts like saying the president, you cannot behave in this way, and 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 the laws apply to you too. One of this is very, you know, uh, of course that's relevant in Israel too, where where Prime Minister Netanyahu is under indictment. Um, but we have in the in the parsha, uh, the, the the Bible is very ambivalent about a king. Yeah. The Bible has judges. The Bible has priests. Um, the Bible has prophets. The rabbis have a, a great uh, uh, respect for their own uh, you know, intellectual leadership and legal leadership. But then there's the, this king thing. King's very important, David and Saul and all their, their descendants in the Bible. Uh, but in our parsha, 
the Bible expresses its ambivalence. It says, listen, you're going to come into the land, and you're going to say, well, we want to be like everybody else with a king. Um, we want to have be, be like the other nations. So the Bible says, listen, you can appoint a king. Uh, it's not the best system, but you got to limit that king's power because that king is likely to want to go get many, many horses, and that king is likely to want to get many, many wives and likely to want to have a whole lot of gold and silver, and you can't really trust that person. And so what you have to do is make the king write his own Torah and carry his own Torah with him, which amounts to saying um, great human power has to be restrained by loyalty to the Torah. Oh, maybe that works. No, maybe that but doesn't. I would add, Jeremy, to what you said so eloquently is that there's also an element of trust here because the, the fact of the matter is with human institutions, there are always going to be breakdowns. And we live by almost by definition in a world of uncertainty. And too often we try to grasp for certainty. And when we do that, we often distort things. So the prophet, as which you mentioned, also is drawn in our Parsha with a, a mixed a mixed portrait in that we have prophets and then we have to be concerned about false prophets. And false prophets are going to look just like true prophets and you're going to have to be able to distinguish them and it's not going to be so easy to do so, especially when the false prophet is a genuine false prophet, meaning someone who believes what he is saying is the truth as opposed to the intentionally bad false prophet, the one who's lying, um, hence the name false prophet in the Vishakar. And um, so it's hard to uh, choose correctly. So there's a difference between the liar and the person in the grip of a delusion. Both, oh, are, yes. both are wrong. Both are wrong. But some people actually believe their lies. So as, as both of you are, are reacting to this, my question, the question that's coming in my head is, does the Torah envision a populace that has to take responsibility? Um, you know, you, you spoke about checks and balances. And I think, I think that this is a very good version, an early version of a system of checks and balances that uh, probably, and in here we'd have to defer to you know other scholars, legal scholars and historians, how Deuteronomy influences the Western tradition, I think is a big, big question. And it, it, it clearly does, because the king is subject to the constitution, which would be, uh, you know, in contemporary terms, the president is, you know, subordinate to the law, because there's no one above the law. And it, this this system demythologizes uh, the monarch in the sense that the monarch is not the founder of the nation and has no mythology around it. But the monarch is simply someone that that you appoint somewhere down the line. The nation is formed, the the people are formed, and and there is tremendous responsibility among the people to keep that to keep that monarch in check or to keep those prophets in check because you know the prophet gets up and says you know so you know on thursday we're going to have rain and the, the 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 people have to say you know what are you crazy this is not the way this is not we, the way we do it you know what's the responsibility of the people here and how empowered are the people here and what does Deuteronomy so have a vision of empowerment i had a teacher many years ago when i was at spurtus uh, rabbi martin goldman and he one said that the problem in Judaism is not anthropomorphism, imagining God with human features, because after all, we describe things in the categories we know, 
The problem is when people think they're God. Mm -hmm. And what we have with these institutions of the priesthood, the king, and the prophet are people who, by definition, are next to God, who sometimes think that they come in place of God. And the problem for the people is making that distinction because the predicate of the system is that you have to trust God, that these three leaders are vehicles to get to God, but they're not replacements for God. So then, and what's the, the people test? have to trust God, yeah. Ultimately, what's the test? I mean, you know, uh, to of the of the false prophet or the Navi Sheker. I mean, I, I, we, we could parse that that phrase Navi Sheker and say it's a it's an illegitimate leader, false leader, or we could say it's the prophet of the lie. That is a person who is is it pro fuses with lies. Um, and and to what extent is the population empowered to check that and and to it's it's hard to know you know uh what they conceive of because this these these are directives towards the leaders um but by 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 virtue of the fact that we do say we do have a, a rule here in the Torah is you cannot let the king accumulate horses cannot let the king accumulate wives and cannot let the king accumulate too much money it would seem to me that, that there is an implicit uh, mitzvah on society to keep that in balance um by the way you know say practical everyday jewish observance in case anyone wants to know 18 is the number of wives the king can have 18 not 18. one more so to know. Let, let us all resolve that we will not let the kingdom but, but with it. Obviously, just to underscore that, you know that that marriages are diplomacy and horses are military and gold and silver is the treasury. And, yeah. and so what the Torah is talking about here is the apparatus of state. And it's really trying to contain the king saying, limit your diplomatic relationships, limit your military activity and limit your treasury, which is almost unheard of in the ancient world since the parallels that exist in the ancient world for monarchies are to expand your reach, to expand your empire, to expand your treasury, and you know to be um, to have military, you know, hegemony over over your neighbors, basically. So what I, I'm thinking is that in the ancient world, people really had very little to do with the king. The king lived in the capital. Not everyone lived in the capital. And your connection to the king was traditionally one of two ways, with taxes, which you had to pay, and perhaps with the military corvée, the draft, where you had an obligation to serve in the army for a certain amount of time, or in public works, as is discussed in the Book of Kings with regard to Solomon's great building projects. And I think what perhaps some of these laws about the, the wives and the money and the horses is to suggest that the people have to be paying attention to the king all the time, hmm. that there's a danger that the king is going to go overboard, as it were, be excessive, grab too much, and it's the responsibility of the people to keep him in check because it's almost the king's job to try and want more. Let's I, I, also, I also think, by the way, that one of the things that's going on in the Parsha, which is not exactly about how the populace restrains the potentially despotic power of the king, but I do think the parsha is pervaded with examples of um, examples of uh, the responsibility that people have, not just not just the leaders. 
you know, in, in my recently rewritten prayer for the state of Israel, uh, one of the things that I added was that every citizen is obliged. I, I put in the, the phrase, every citizen is bound to, uh, to, to, you know, keep the, the, the goal, the values and goals, what the state is founded on, uh, because it's not just a leader's job, it's everybody's job. So here's, here's just a couple of examples. The Parsha has, in, in addition to false prophets, it has false witnesses. What happens if people, uh, the crooked timber of humanity, because everyone has the potential to be, you know, a lying, cheating, whatever. Sometimes witnesses are going to lie. And what happens when you deal with that? What happens when a dead body is found and you cannot assign responsibility? There's this there's this kind of uh, apotropaic, magical uh, renunciation of responsibility. Um, that if dead bodies are found between two towns and it's it's like really right between two towns. And you can't say, well, it's, it was closer to Chicago than it was to Milwaukee. Um, so both the leaders of Chicago and Milwaukee have to come out and say, this was not our fault. So there's a magical sort of renunciation of responsibility, but implicit in, in the story that's beneath is actually you are responsible for the stuff that happens in your town. And if you let somebody go off without protection and they get, you know, killed by Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, and it is your fault. So not only that, I think what the part that we often overlook with the the, the broken neck cow is that you're responsible not only for what happens in your town, the rabbinic premise being that the the victim of the crime did not get hospitality in town and so left and was left to the elements, which include uh, criminal human behavior, but you're also responsible for what happens outside of the town. That you can't draw the boundary that this is my sphere where I'm concerned and out there I cannot be concerned. So because you know, what the Torah is telling us is you have to be concerned for the entire land. Okay, so this this is the the passage at the end. We we'll just direct our our audience to that, um, which is the what we call the Engla Arufa, the, the 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 calf where you break the the neck of the heifer um, when they find this this dead body, and it's it's quite a ritual at the end. Uh, I'm looking at uh, 21 verse 7, Vanuva Amru. That phrase, Vanuva Amru, is always a kind of ritualistic recitation. They shall make this declaration Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Absolve, O Lord, your people Israel, whom you redeemed, and do not let guilt for the blood of the innocent remain among your people Israel, and they will be absolved of blood guilt. Thus you will remove from your midst guilt for the blood of the innocent. For you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. That's how the parsha ends, by the way. Um, but what what's underlying this is the whole notion of the pollution of the land, that innocent blood that is shed, um, and and for a crime that we cannot solve, uh, that affects the body politic, that that really stirs people up, terrorizes people, makes people completely afraid for their own security. That that then introduces an element of chaos. In addition to the pollution uh, that the innocent blood has shed, I know we've spoken about this in the past. I don't know if you you have any um, thoughts about this in 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 that sense, Barry or Jeremy. What I would say, just to turn the phrase, is that any crime that affects a body has to, by definition, affect the body politic. Yeah. That, in other words, the individual is always part of the community. And what happens to a single individual necessarily has an effect 
on the rest of the community. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned um, I, or suggested there's a reference to the cities of refuge. And this goes back to uh, the discussion in the Safer Bimid Bar at the end, where in the cities of refuge, the unintentional manslayer stays there until the high priest dies, because all blood must be avenged in some way that even spilt blood that we would consider accidental or certainly not malicious, unintentional, had, takes a price. And you have to make amends. And the manslayer makes amends by waiting for the death of the high priest, whose death atones for all the sins at that time. Interesting. And in a similar way, we have the Egla Arufa, where some human being has to take responsibility. So if we don't have the perpetrator then the community has to take responsibility. It's the elders. The elders play a significant role. Right. In this case, the, the Egla, the calf, who is Arufa, has has its uh, neck broken. Like, you remember in Apocalypse Now when they chop off the back of the head of the yeah, calf? Totally. Um, so that blood, as, as Barry said correctly, is, is, is like seen as a magical way of compensating because you don't have a human perpetrator to execute or to put in the city of refuge or whatever but i, I just want to on a very uh just poetic level when you don't have that you don't have a human perpetrator and you can't say that it was like right at the border of chicago so chicago is responsible in a way that milwaukee is not um then you go in the middle and the elders of the towns wash their hands of the cow and so they kind of uh, wear away their or, or you know, swab away their own guilt. But it's, it occurs to me that uh, that other religion that drew on the Hebrew Bible um, has has the Roman uh, Roman governor saying, I wash my hands of Jesus uh, at the execution. So it, it seems like that story might be, maybe I'm wrong, might be a an allusion to this. And, and then Jesus gets in that story, you know, becomes the egg la arufa, the sort of sacrificial victim. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. But w the way we use the phrase to wash your hands of something uh, has a connotation of actually like trying to exculpate yourself from responsibility. No, no, no. You can't wash your hands of this. You have to, in fact, take responsibility for it. Let's dial back for a second. I, I know we, we want to talk about um, going to war. And uh, the, the last part of this Parsha deals uh, with a number of regulations relating to war. Let's first talk about the, the regulations at the beginning of chapter 20, which is how you select your soldiers and who gets an amnesty and who gets a kind of you know exemption from battle. It's it's a remarkable set of passages here. Uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through whatever, 6, 7, 8. Uh, you take the field against your enemies. Um and and then um the 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 people go out verse five the the shotrim go out we met the shotrim be, at the beginning these people who are magistrates or officials they say whoever has built a new house but is not dedicated let him go back to his home verse six who is the, the person who has planted a vineyard and has not harvested it? He can go back. And then verse 7, Mi ha'ish asher eras isha, the person who has 
paid a bride price for his wife, in other words, become engaged, is not married or yet, let him go back. Three instances of, of exemptions, uh, building a house, planting a vineyard, getting married or betrothal. What does this say about, about an army? What does it say about people? What is it? Go ahead. Yeah. You got one more. I want one more. I'm sorry. Yeah. The Umi Ha'ish, verse, verse uh, nine, right? No, verse, uh, it's verse, verse eight. I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Uh, is there anyone afraid and disheartened? Okay, Jeremy. <laughs> You'd have to be, the, the Talmud is, is actually quite spicy on this one. Like, what's the definition? Like, you hear the other armies and the rattling of the shields and the stomping of the boots and the clashing of the arms, and you wet yourself. Okay, like that's we're talking some. Who you have to be a dang fool not to be afraid. <laughs> Everybody has to be afraid. Um, there's actually a, a terror. I mean. I'm not happy to say this. I think this is the name of Rabbi Akiva in that mission in Tractate Sota. This is what's being afraid, who's, what's rachalevav, tenderhearted, is that you're not going to take full, you're not going to be brutal enough. Um, oh, let, 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 let the gentle people go home. We, for this moment, need soldiers who are brutal. Uh, I, 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 I got to say, I really, I really don't like that, that uh, uh, interpretation. I mean, I think that there's an idea that, Perhaps that there's something like, maybe it's just pragmatic. If you're thinking about your house, if you're thinking about your your vineyard, thinking about your 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 fiance, um, you you won't have your heart in battle, and that's going to be bad for everybody. But I, I instinctively I feel that something else is going on, which is that there's just something like wrong about um, about you know interposing at certain moments of life and and losing them on the battlefield. No, no, like you. you this is about good life. This is about full life. This is about relationship. It's home. It's it's the the, the vineyard that we wish for everybody, and that somehow it's like unjust in the parsha of Shoft, in the parsha Shoftim. It's like it's like unjust to force such people to go to battle. But I, I don't know. Mohammed mitzvah, Mohammed, because you would think that in Mohammed mitzvah, people would say, "Look, I, you know, we gotta leave." We gotta leave home. We gotta leave the vineyard. We gotta leave. Okay. People, people should know that the rabbis have a concept of mechamet reshut, optional war, and mechamet mitzvah, obligatory war. And, the, and they say there again in tractate sota, um, in a mechamet mitzvah, like you, you are, you are just required to do this. Um, they think that means the war against the Canaanites, the war of exter- extermination against the Canaanites. I would say. That in our world it means like the wars against the Nazis or Hamas or something like that. Then I feel Chatan mechupato you know Chatan whatever Kalam mechupata. Everybody goes. No, there's no excuses. But this is a milchemet reshut, an an optional war. Now you might ask yourself, how can there be an optional war? Like, shouldn't any war be against the rules unless it is absolutely necessary? But the, the way the rabbis conceive of it is, this is not an absolutely necessary war for survival. Um, this is like, you know, whatever, discretionary military maneuver. But think how demoralizing it is. And I'm, I'm sure we've all seen or heard of these kinds of stories, either in World War II or, or in Vietnam. People went off with photos of their beloved, their, either they were engaged, their girlfriends or whatever. And, and they learn later on that, you know, they... These relationships ended while they were away, and and it was so demoralizing to them. That that's a common theme in this. And and here, someone else 
you know, using your house or eating your from your vineyard or using the crops that you planted, um, it's tremendously demoralizing. It's unstable for a whole society uh, for for these things to happen. And and uh, I'm wondering if the if the Torah is anticipating it on the basis of this kind of dissolution, this lack of morale or building up the the consensus. Barry, I don't know if you want to. So what it, 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 the first three remind me of is when we wash our hands before we eat bread. Interesting. The custom is we're not supposed to talk because the washing of the hands is for the sake of making hamotzi. The act itself is not the key act. And in a similar way, becoming engaged, dedicating your your vineyard, building your house are beginning actions that have a necessary completion that makes them the action that we anticipate. And we we all know that accidents do happen, but this war is not a natural disaster. It's a man-made disaster. And therefore, those people who start actions that they should otherwise be entitled to complete are given a reprieve and able to complete those actions before they are summoned to war. Interesting. The curious one, of course, is the one who's too afraid. And in an earlier verse, the Torah uses three different words to describe fear. So we can imagine there's a whole range of fear that might go in. And as Jeremy said, a lot of the fear is natural, but there is an unnatural fear that can affect the other people. And you have to be on guard against that because if you cannot conquer your fear, not only are you bad for yourself, but you're also bad for the people you're fighting with. Right. And the other thing I, I think that we always have to keep in mind is we're talking about hand-to-hand -hand combat mostly. We're not talking about um, guns, certainly, or probably even bows and arrows. We're talking about knives and swords and perhaps rocks. And these are close encounters where someone is where we imagine there's a lot of physical violence against all the combatants, only some of whom are going to emerge victorious and alive. Right. So for them, it's a, it's, it's a different kind of fear. Look, the, the people yeah. that are using um, mechanized warfare now, and, and now you have, you know, drone warfare, which I think we're, we're in another moment of transition as to how war wars are being fought. Of course, there's, a huge war that's being fought right now where where all of this is being played out where all these you know different kinds of armaments are being tested and experimented on on the on the lives of these poor ukrainians and other and these russians uh, you know these these kids who are being kind of rounded up from country sides and just thrown into battle without any training just as fodder it's it's horrible um i i i want to just you know, we have a minute. the The phrase "miha ish, miha ish, miha ish" it 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 rings in our ears. You know, miha ish chavetz chaim. So it's hard not to read "miha ish, miha ish" without hearing the Psalms and say "miha ish chavetz chaim." Well, these are the people who love life. The one who's just built a house, who has just planted a vineyard, and is just engaged to a to, to a woman to right. They have to and be able to enjoy that. So at least but, for a moment. And so, how does the psalm uh, answer the desire for life? Don't speak uh, lashon hara. 
Those be the Tzor and the Shon Chamera. Guard your tongue from speaking evil. Usfatecha midaber mirma, and your lips from speaking guile. Sur meira vaaseto, veer away from evil and do good. Bake shalom beradvehu. That's interesting, right? Seek peace and pursue it. That is the ultimate answer to war. Is the seeking peace? If you read Deuteronomy with the echo of the Psalms in your ears, you you get your you get a full picture, which is. Yeah, we're pursuing all of these objectives militarily, but really the pursuit ought to be for peace and chase after it. It's elusive. That's what Pake Shalom Veratfeo is. You know, we're always going to be seeking it and it's always going to elude us, but the key to desiring life is to seek it, I guess. That's what it is. Well, we have reached the end of our time together here on Parsha Talk. It's been great to be with you. It's been great to talk with and discuss and to share this Torah with everyone who's watching us. We are growing by leaps and bounds every week. Share us and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next edition. In the meantime, Shabbat Shalom! Shabbat Shalom! We'll see you next week on the next edition of Parsha.